I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley. And you are listening to Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to, well, we talk about different documents from the from the Reformation era uh, and just sort of tell the stories around them and, and the stories of some of the people around them. And so some background on where we're going in this episode today. Luther had been in Augsburg uh, talking with Cardinal Cajetan. But things did not go well. Uh, he saw the writing on the wall, where things were headed. It was a brick wall talking to Cardinal Cajetan. So he snuck out out of town early in the morning. Uh, he left a note for Cardinal Cajetan, bidding him farewell. Frederick the Wise continued negotiations on Luther's behalf with the Cardinal. And after that, Luther uh, went back in Wittenberg. And in Wittenberg, he started writing his notes on what happened in Augsburg in 1518 with his discussions with Cardinal Cajetan. This was a bit of a problem for our friend Frederick the Wise. Who because was... he didn't just write them, <laughs> no. he published them. Luther understood the value of the printed press, and he knew that if he could share the story of what happened in Augsburg, he could help define uh, how other people saw what was happening as well. So what ended up happening was uh, Luther Luther goes back, he publishes, and then they ended up having to black out. They redacted. They redacted. And I think, you know, from what I read, it wasn't just, they had, it wasn't like modern printing that they could just get rid of it easily. They actually had to black it out. You know, they had to black out those paragraphs that were sensitive in the negotiations between Frederick the Wise and uh, Cardinal Cajetan to, to save Luther's neck. So an interesting thing about Luther... At leaving Augsburg and leaving the Cardinal is he could do that. That there was a power play at work in Europe at this time that meant that you have a Cardinal that is sent by the Pope to arrest Luther, take him back to Rome, and he ends up giving him a fatherly hearing in Augsburg. So it gives you an idea of the power of Frederick the Wise. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about the politics the, the, and the the idea that Europe is not this monolithic idea of power. The Pope has all this power. The Emperor has this power. But in fact, how Luther gets moved around reveals, well, first of all, we trust that the Word of God has power. And that's what Luther is going to rely on. But he's also going to find out that Frederick the Wise, who is the noble in Saxony, has a lot of power. How could one guy in one little small section of Saxony that doesn't have a lot of resources, has a small new university, could have the kind of power that protects Luther from Rome and the emperor? So we're going to be talking about both the church, the power of the church. We're going to be talking in the in 1500s, in the early 1500s. We're going to be talking about the power of the state in that same time, the power of the emperor in that same time. And then we're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about the power of the family, which is, we'll see how that one fits into all of this, because that's the one that Luther hones in on. As he moves, when he goes back to Wittenberg, he starts focusing on, on what is family and what is the power of the family in relation to church and state. And so this podcast is one that tells the stories of people and the Reformation. But this episode isn't as much a specific biography of a person or of a document that Luther wrote. We're telling in this episode the story of the idea of the Reformation and its influence in church and society and family and how the balance between these three 
gets changed during the Reformation. And it's really, we're, this is really setting the table for our next episode. Our next episode, we're going to be having some discussions on actual documents, two kinds of righteousness. Um, uh, we have, uh, I think we have another, a couple other documents that we're going to be discussing in that next episode where we're going to talk about how this stuff plays out. But you really, in order to understand the next episode, we had to go back and do some legwork and, and, and really sort of build up the, the structure of what's happening in this era. So the lives of an idea is a dramatic one for historians, but we hope also for this podcast. Now, these ideas have a stretch backwards from the 1500s. We're going to go back to um, 800 with Charlemagne, but we also want to go forward to see the influence of this balancing between church and family and society. And so, example, in the 18th century, 1700s, James Madison in America points to Luther as a major turning point in the development of the idea of separation of church and state. And so, as you think about how is it that in America we started to look as the church being one thing and the state being a separate thing, how did that come about? James Madison says Luther is one of the the seeds for this idea for him. Now, for those folks who aren't, you know, uh, revolutionary U.S., aren't really interested in that period of history, uh, the James Madison wrote the Constitution. Uh, he was the primary uh, mover and shaker behind the Constitution. And he he was the guy who, when he was mapping out exactly how our government is structured, he he was referencing back to Martin Luther, which eventually became you know John Locke, and and there were other philosophers who sort of built on on Luther's thinking. But Luther really set the groundwork, and so we'll be over the course of this podcast, not this specific episode, but over the course of this podcast, we'll eventually we'll occasionally be coming around and talking about these ideas and where they, you know, okay, this is a document that talks about this specific idea and it pl- it plays out in this stream of thought on on again, separation of church and state or whatever it else that other great ideas that find their seeds here in the in the Reformation era. So we'll look at the harvest later, but right now we're going to look at the seeds. What is happening in the church um, is that there is a sense of power that the church has, um, and that this power we I trust is a power of the Word of God to change lives, to transform them from death to life. Now that's that's a Lutheran idea. A, a Lutheran a, idea of the Word is centered and focused on the good news of Jesus Christ. But in the ninth century, we got Charlemagne. He is a, an amazing man. Charles the Great is what Charlemagne means. And Charles the Great, uh, he is bringing together Europe, and so he is demonstrating that he's got a lot of political power. And in the midst of this political power that Charlemagne is developing. The church also has a great deal of strength. In 800, Charlemagne showed up to Rome to have his son blessed as the future heir to the throne. And during the ceremony, Charlemagne knelt down to pray. And when he stood up, the Pope unexpectedly puts a crown on his head and declares him emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. So he's an emperor. All of a sudden, and it's not because he was elected by the people, where there were a bunch of nobles that raised the banners and said, here's our new emperor. The Pope steps into this space and exerts 
the political power that the church is going to have for some time now. What's funny about that uh, when I now uh, modern historians are wondering: Did Char- was Charlemagne in the did mix? he know what was happening? Did he know this was going to come? It's sort of hard to believe that he walks into church, sees this massive you know crown sitting up on the on the altar, and doesn't notice it. But uh, let's say let's give him what, what happens is right after it happens, he, he goes and he makes a very public proclamation listen i don't want to be emperor i don't want this and the pope says i'm sorry god said so you're you're emperor well there is a tradition of uh people being called by god to do something after they've denied doing it and that that is almost the sign of of them being the called one it's because they didn't want it i i wonder for crowning of charlemagne if that's one of the things of establishing his legitimacy is to make it sound like he didn't want it well, and the, you know that's why a lot of modern historians are wondering if he was because by him becoming emperor, it caused all sorts of political problems, and he was able to say, "Hey, I didn't ask for this," you know. But now that I am, God said so. You know. And so, what this event does is not only tells us about a cute story with Charles uh, the Great kneeling down at the bapt the uh, blessing of his son to be the heir to the throne. But more importantly, it is telling us about the power the church has at this time to influence and direct the political events in Europe. Uh, the church is doing more than just telling people about Jesus. So let's move forward by about... Now, Charlemagne was roughly about 800 A.D. I think it might have been actually 800 mm-hmm. A.D. And uh, so it's roughly around 800 A.D. Move forward about 200 years to about 1000 A.D. Now, this is... To put everybody's head in the right place, this is still 500 years before Luther. And so just sort of, this is still, and now there's something called the investiture controversy. So the power between the emperor and the church, and really just kings throughout Europe, is a struggle. Uh, It gets to the point where uh, if the emperor is picked by the pope in 800, now the power has flipped and the emperor is picking the pope. And now there, there were actually some popes who the, the, the emperor would say, you know, you know, I, I'm not too crazy about you, you know, uh, so you know, I'm not that into you anymore, so you're out, and would put another pope in, and th- and would go through like five or six popes, and this would create uh, frustration um, to people who are just trying to go about their business, and it's all this political stuff, and it's an excess of power in the crown during this time. Uh, there's a corruption that's happening, and it's uh, reflected in the local level as well. So you have pope, you have cardinals, but there's bishops. And the bishops uh, at this time are not necessarily religious leaders as much as they are also landowners. Uh, they will own uh, quite a bit of an endowment that might be established within their diocese, so they'll control a lot of money, they'll control tax. So you... You'll have a king, you'll have an emperor that within his territory is a bishop that has land, has money, and has the power to tax, and all without a lot of accountability to the king or noble in that area. And so the investiture controversy is looking at who gets to name who these bishops are. So we have, you know, right now, let's say you're, you're a local, you're the emperor. Or, or a local duke, and you want to invest the bishop, your local yeah, bishop. Yeah, let's talk about that word invest, investiture. What does that mean? Is when someone is placed into their office, there's an investiture. Uh, the, you could think of it as like an installation. 
There's an investment in the life of the church by the placing of this emperor or this pope. It's largely just looking at the placing into office. But there's also some money involved. It's not just a ceremony. Well, especially back in the 1200, 1100 AD and up until Luther's time, actually. The nobi- nobility figures, they can start to make some cash out of this thing by selling the bishop's office. And uh, simony gets, uh, uh, there's a problem with that. We don't like uh, the selling of offices. But one way that a noble could keep its power uh, by rewarding or by selling positions, and then that's how he would curry favor with people in his kingdom. If the bishop is not appointed by the local noble, then that local noble loses the power of influence in his territory. That's what they're thinking. So, so, so what we've got is the situation where the nobles, the nobles, the local nobles are saying, "Okay, um, I, I have this bishopric. I'm going to, you know, I." I Hey, I know this guy. He could really use a job, you know. <laughs> so, or I could uh, use this guy's brother and his big army. I want the guy's big army. Yeah. So I'm going to give that guy with the big army's brother this job. Or maybe we got the money. You know, there's all sorts of different reasons why somebody might get a bishopric. So then in 1059, we get another turning of power. So we had the Pope have a lot of power. Then we have the emperors have a lot of power. And in 1059, there's a reform. And the emperor lost the ability to pick the Pope. Now, what happened there was uh, Henry IV was made emperor. And I think it was like six years old or nine years old. He was really, really young. And so Henry IV becomes emperor. And what uh, the, the Pope decide the they decide to pick the next the next pope and the pope the college of cardinals is put in place and this is when the college of cardinals that we all know and love is you know is is put in place is in this investiture controversy to pick the pope and you know henry the fourth is too young he doesn't have the power to fight that and so they you know boom done you know the 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 pope is going to be picked by the college of cardinals and so that's that was uh, an in in nom in nomine domini. Uh, can you read you you you're you're better with the uh, the Latin than me, so it's the oh the yeah in the name of our Lord. So in nomine domine. Okay. The, the and that the leaders of the nobility would have no part in the selection of popes that created the College of Cardinals as the body of electors made up entirely of church officials, and so Rome regained control of the election of the pope. So a church council meets, um, and they establish this meeting of, at this meeting, and from that church council is published a document in nomine domine, um, in the name Which, of our Lord. Which, you know, as always, we have to drink and, uh, I don't whenever we use excess, excessive Latin, there we go. <laughs> and so, and this, this, uh, today's drink is Huma Lupalicious, uh, and we'll be talking about that during our, our beer break. We're actually going to be implementing a formal beer break in today's episode, so we'll, We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the beer in a minute. The story of Henry IV and the investiture controversy um, is filled with some wonderful dra- drama. He goes to Canossa uh, to repent, um, and he wears his her- hair shirt, which just imagine um, the most uncomfortable shirt you could imagine. Um, and, and then that's what you're wearing, I suppose. <laughs> so, and so- then he's kneeling in the snow, and the Pope makes him wait for three days in the snow. Uh, there, and there's that's just an amazing story, though, of how the emperor could be so reliant 
on the good word of the Pope to have his legitimacy of power. Well, this uh, is an example of how the power is turned from one side to another. Now, let's. T- this is actually really. Let's take. Let's sort of unpack that a little bit because we went from a period where the where the emperor was picking the Pope, where now you've got the emperor sitting in the snow in a hair shirt for three days. How did that happen? Well, what ended up happening was the Pope, when when the emperor said, "I get to," you know, we're going to pick the. The Pope said, well, I want to pick the local bishops. And the emperor said, nope, you're not going to pick the local bishops. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to say that you're no longer Pope. And the Pope said, oh, yeah. No longer emperor, yeah. I'm going to say you're no, not only that, I'm going to excommunicate you. So the Pope excommunicates the emperor. And so now the, the local dukes and the local, all the, the local, uh, the local nobles all decide, you know what? We weren't really too crazy about that emperor anyway. And they start revolting against the emperor. And so now the emperor is realizing that, that, you know, he needs to repent. He, he's lost the respect of the church and he's lost the respect of the nobles. The only way that Henry IV can regain his respect is by actually groveling on his knees. Um, then the Pope uh, forgives him of his sins. Um, going to Canossa is a phrase that's used, probably not anymore by anybody, but it used to be a phrase, <laughs> going to Canossa, was a phrase that would describe having to repent and be excessive in our repentance to demonstrate um, that we were wrong and that now we know that we are wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what ends up happening is you have, but what you can see is now the, the table has turned. Now, so now the, the power is in the church. Now, the reason the church took the power away from the emperors is because the emperors had started to kind of sell and buy these bishops. And instead of having some uh, uh, virtue, it became a thing of politics. So if it's back in the church hands, does that mean the bishops and the naming of the bishops will be filled with virtue? If the church is handling the bishops, does that mean there's going to be virtue? Well, unfortunately, no. So after the investiture controversy, the church starts to have the same problems as the nobility, allowing the positions of bishop to be purchased for their power, setting the stage for the issues during the time of Luther. The writing of the 95 Theses yeah, and the posting of them on October 31st, 1517 is directly related to a buying of a bishop, uh, a bishopric in Mainz. And that Albrecht of Mainz had to spend a lot of money to secure the naming of himself to be the bishop, uh, the archbishop of Mainz. And in order to pay back the debt, uh, of that purchase, he was allowed to sell indulgences. Luther's reacting to the sale of the indulgences, and the indulgences were being sold to pay back a debt because a man was trying to purchase the Archbishop of Mainz. Now, the Archbishop of Mainz was an important position to buy because he was one of the electors to the Holy Roman Emperor. So you see all this intertwining between church and state in this era. And nobody is perfect in this system of church and state. No, but at the moment, the way the tables have turned is that the power, there's an, there's a lot of power that sits within the church and power corrupts. And so you have this, this corrupt church and the tables are once again, now the tables turned against the, the emperor. Now that then the tables, now the tables are turning against the church. And anytime power is used, all right, get ready. I'm going to use some Latin. Anytime power is used in an imperium fashion. Oh, there we go. There we go. It, it, as an act of, Imperial, you hear that word emperor. Um, it is a uh, power that rules over others. 
when we use power in imperium, we will find ourselves um, using power to serve ourselves. But whenever we use power in a diaconic fashion, <laughs> as now diaconic, uh, deacon, you can hear the word for um, there. It's a word that means service. Okay. So if we use, uh, so if I use my power in an imperial fashion, um, a good way to think of this now is from Star Wars. If I use my power like Darth Vader to serve myself and make people serve me, oh, I'm your father. All right. So that is bad. The dark side is bad because they use power to serve themselves. The Jedi are good because they use their power to serve others. Uh-huh. And, and so the challenge of the church and the state at the time of Luther is they are both using their powers to serve themselves. And it's into this reality of the self-serving power that is corrupted um, that Luther then seeks to bring about Reformation. So now one more question before we go for our beer break is, was Luther the only guy asking for a reform of the church? Well, Erasmus and all the humanists are seeking a great uh, reform of the church. And then there was also uh, Boniface, who was a couple hundred years before Luther, uh, sought to bring a lot of reform to the monasteries and the amount of money they had. Um, a lot of the reforms that the humanists sought and others sought was, let's just teach people the right way to do things. Now, the humanists eventually become... Uh, they're, humanists are essentially truth seekers. Is sort of they they want where, where does the truth lead, and they, they're they're that's how they're looking at things. And start with the sources. Go back to the sources and let the truth of the sources dictate where you're going. And that was Erasmus of Rotterdam, uh, the most influential humanist, uh, was gently calling for a lot of the same reforms as Luther. And Erasmus was respected a great deal among the universities because he was publishing important documents that were helping people establish uh, the value of truth in in the documents and not just in the, all the logical arguments that would spring from them. But in fact, let's take some time to, instead of saying, well, I think this and I think this and I think that and I think that, let's go away from all the philosophical arguments and just go back, well, what does the document say? So the, one of the things that I think in a previous episode we might have, I think it was Martin uh, Bucer uh, said that when he met Luther, he was, he was... Oh, that was at the Heidelberg Disputation. Yeah, at yeah. the Heidelberg Disputation, he said he's... He's Erasmasian or something like this. He gave uh, he gave some word where it was like that that Luther was was actually saying the same things Erasmus was saying, but Luther was saying much more boldly. Erasmus was much more political, and he was sort of saying a lot of the same stuff Luther was saying, but he was saying it, you know, couching it and and uh, dipl- diplomatic terms, and you know, and that was so there the, there was a lot of work going to reform both the church and the state at this the same time that Luther walks in the door. Now, Mike, when we use that word humanist, we don't use that in contrast to those who believe in God. It's not as if there are those theists that believe in God and there's a humanist that believe in man. Uh, the humanists weren't atheists. Right, and that's actually, I was as I was doing my research on this, People would say, "Oh, yeah, the the humanists were the first atheists." It's like, uh, no, 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 that that was Luther's best friend and one of the leaders of the Reformation that wrote the Augsburg Confession. Philip Melanchthon was hired at the University of Wittenberg because he was greatly respected as a humanist. He was a young guy too. I think he oh, was yeah. like around twenty. 
Yeah. And the other reality, if humanists are atheists, I've got some concern because my major in college was in the humanities. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not an atheist. So, um, now, uh, Philip Melanchthon arrives in Wimberg in 1518, and the influence of the humanists will become significant in the Reformation. Uh, just to consider this, Luther translating the New Testament into Germany is made possible because of the Greek New Testament that Erasmus and the humanists were publishing in Europe. So now... So now this is this is giving you a little bit of idea on the church. I think it's time for a beer break. Now, before we go into this first beer break, this is the official first official beer break. Uh, the, I, I want to tell the story. My brother was listening to our podcast. And so he's listening to the podcast. He got like 10 or 15 minutes into it. And he said, oh, my goodness, I need a beer. His brain got full. His brain got full. So, so we're going to put this little beer break in. And to let everybody sort of uh, give everybody a break, and, and we'll, we're just going to talk about beer for a few minutes now. All right. So the Humalupalicious, I thought it was named after Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> but it is in fact derived from the name of a hop plant, the Humulus lupulus. It is uh, a beer that's brewed with five different hop varieties, Centennial, Columbus, Chinook, Cascade, and Palisade. And Huma is known for having an intense bitterness that is balanced by a rich malty flavor. So, I don't taste the bitterness that much, but I do taste that malty yeah, kind of heavy on the tongue flavor. Now this is this beer is coming from a, a, a Michigan, as most of our beers do. It's a Michigan brewery called Shorts Brewery. And when I first ran into Shorts, okay, I, Shorts Brewery, I thought it was a play on the old Strohs. When I was a kid, we would go, we would call Strohs, Strohs S. T-R-O-H-S, spelled backwards, is Shorts. And so I thought that this was a play. But no, this is actually, Shorts beer is a beer that was, uh, it's brewed by a guy named Joe Shorts. And he registered the Shorts Brewing Company as a business in the state of Michigan in 2002. So it's it's a reminder that in Michigan, a lot of great things are happening. And he's got, uh, the, what he did was he took an old hardware store. I, I, was, I was cruising through their website. He took an old hardware store, 120-year-old har- uh, hardware store or something like this, and he made it into a brewery and a restaurant. And his, it's, so it's up in Traverse City. It's in kind the Traverse of between City. Traverse City and Petoskey. Okay, okay. And, and so I've never been there. I've never been to Shorts Brewery, but it sounds uh, they have uh, some great beers. I really like. There the, might be a road trip there eventually. <laughs> I don't know. That's that, we'll work up to that one. Yeah, the pub opened its doors in 2004, and, and Joe Short said about the pub: "Words cannot describe the heartache, stress, losses, physical and mental fatigue, and great rewards experienced through the struggle to bring the Shorts Brewing Company project to fruition." He sounds like an entrepreneur that had an investment not just in the idea, but in the idea. Of bringing something good to people. Yeah. That, uh, what, what, the Imperium, what was it? The the, the Imperium versus, uh, well, I said diaconic, but as a deacon, um, the, uh, what is it? Um, another word, uh, deaconos. Deaconos. Or, yeah, it's the one. So. Okay, well, for, to Joe Shorts. Yeah. It's kind of a mixing of Latin and Greek there, so we'll have to work <laughs> on that one. The Ministerium. There's the there the go. contrast to Imperium is Ministerium. Okay. That way we can stay in Latin and not switch between Latin and Greek there. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, so the Huma Lupalicious is an India Pale Ale. And I remember when I was trying to learn what India Pale Ales tasted like, someone said, 
you really have to like beer to drink an India Pale Ale. I, you know, I, I actually love India Pale Ales. They, they're yes. really, they, they have a great bitterness. It is not Budweiser, though. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, now the thing with uh, India Pale Ales, the story, do you know the story of India Pale Ales? So, I- India Pale Ales go back to the British were uh, in India, and they were, you know, basically, we'll say, you know, in a friendly way, helping the Indians run their country and take mm-hmm. all their stuff. Well, it was them. a colonial time. <laughs> yeah, and so, then, so then, anyway, the, so the, the, they were running India, and, uh, and they, they had to ship <clears throat> the beer from, from uh, Great Britain all the way to India. And, and to, to get the beer to last and remain fresh for that whole trip, they really upped the hops, and the hops acted as a preservative. Okay. And so, when the when the soldiers who were there in India and they wanted to have real good, you know, English beer, yeah. but they got used to this really strong hoppy beer, and it was, uh, and and so then they came back to it was called the India Pale Ale, and they would drink it and they loved it. And then they came back to Great Britain, and they said they would go to the local bars. They said, "Well, where, where's your India Pale Ale? We love that stuff." And so you have all these soldiers coming back from India from their their term of duty in, in India, and they wanted they wanted some of this India Pale Ale. And so this is that was the start of the India Pale Ale, and it is a for 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 heavy for for guys who enjoy a strong beer. The IPAs are are a favorite. So yeah, so Shorts has been around for 13 years. Uh, still owned by Joe and Leah Short, and their success is uh, based on hard work, sacrifice, and, and going the right direction with their business. Now let's go back to the 16th century. Why did we start talking about humanists so much? Is because they're introducing uh, a change of power from church or from the state. Now the humanists. And the Reformation are introducing a different source of power, which is the the power of God's word. Which is, well, actually, no. Now I take that back because there, Luther introduces the Reform the reformers are 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 saying the power resides in God and His word. And yeah, so to connect the humanists and Luther together, they're both saying go back to the source. Um, now Erasmus might be saying any of the sources, like Aristotle or Socrates or any of these sources. And for Luther, it's the specific voice. In fact, this idea that Luther's going back to the specific voice, the voice of God, sometimes made Erasmus nervous. Erasmus once commented that he was afraid to fight too hard with Luther because he might be going against the voice of God. And that really gives you an idea of the faithfulness of Erasmus, that he was actually willing to consider that his opponent, Martin Luther, might be right because Luther was basing his stance on scripture. So if the emperor has power because he's got a big army uh, and the pope has power because he has uh, the power to uh, forgive sins or retain sins, determine whether you're going to hell or heaven, uh, there's a whole different kind of truth in here. Instead of serving myself, now what does power look like when I serve others? Now, German society and government uh, at the time that we're talking about is also something to understand. How is it that during the time of Luther, Frederick the Wise, uh, the leader of Saxony, could have enough power to thumb his nose at the emperor? And that's because... And the Pope. And the Pope. He thumbs his nose at both um, is because he is living inside of a fractured Germany. The emperor is by title the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the king of the Germans, and yet... 
He and, is very dependent on the nobles. And, and, and you know what's funny about this? It's you know what goes around comes around. It's actually the, by the Pope undermining the power of the emperor. It, you know, back in the investiture controversy that we just discussed, the Pope undermined the power of the emperor. Now that gave the power to the local electors, the dukes, and whoever else was the local folks. That created the situation, huh? That created this. That's why Luther survived. Or the big reason why Luther was able to survive here in Germany, where maybe in France, maybe in Spain, he might not have been able to. You know, the, the, the France, Francis I of, uh, the, the king of France at this point was a Medici. He was a, you know, same family as the, as the Pope. Um, they were both Medicis. And then you have this in Spain, you have Charles V running Spain, and he was obviously sympathetic to the Pope. So it was, you know, it was actually through, because of this investiture controversy that fractured Germany, that gave an opening for Luther in the 1500s. So consider the power you may have in your community or in your family. Uh, or in your church or in your marriage? Uh, will you use your power in an imperium way or in a ministerium as one that serves you or in one that serves others? Uh, look at the how the dominoes will fall if you regularly are using your power to serve yourself. Eventually, the Reformation will happen. <laughs> uh, it might take 800 years <laughs> from Charles the Great to the Reformation, but watch out. <laughs> so, so let's. We've talked a little. We've talked. We've sort of mapped out. I hope we've mapped out the power struggle between the church and the state. Let's talk about the third category, which was family. Yeah. So, in the family. Uh, one thing to consider is at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, if you really wanted to be holy, if you wanted to be virtuous, you were in the church. Um, if you wanted to have power, you, you would maybe be in the state. And marriage was largely just um, something that was considered necessary. It wasn't considered all that virtuous. Uh, the monks were more holy as they were more celibate. Um, and yet there is this foundation that Luther starts to look at of how the order of society can really be seen in microcosm and what is happening in a family. Now, one of the things that Luther says is he really, really, really did not want to tackle the issue of family. Family and marriage was messy, messy business. Well, I wonder if the struggle about talking about is, first of all, he's not married himself in 1519 when he preaches on marriage. Um, and he is uh, looking out at a congregation that is full of marriages that uh, could be working or not working, and he's going to tell them what to do. This is a hard spot for a pastor. Now let's let's go back to that moment, this moment, because when Luther is talking, we come back. Luther comes back from. I had a, a friend of mine who listens to the podcast, and he uh, he said, "Hey, you know, Luther has now gone to the." Uh, he had a meeting with Cardinal Cajetan, right? And he goes back to his, his church. What happens? What happens? It well, is remarkable. From 1518, it doesn't happen until 1521 that he's excommunicated. He has this meeting where he walks away from Cardinal Cajetan. Cardinal Cajetan had come to Augsburg to take Luther back to Rome for a hearing. Luther walks away. And there isn't an excommunication until 1521. So what takes place between 1518 and 1521? Is Luther's a pastor, and so what? And this is sort of what, what uh, in a in a future episode we'll be talking about Karl von Miltitz, 
who actually did some reconnaissance work through Germany. And he mentions that the Germans are really starting to line up behind Luther. So Luther is well thought of, even though he's got problems with Rome. Well, enough people have problems with Rome and Germany that they're starting to say, you know what, we sort of like you, Luther. And especially in Wittenberg, you know, they love Luther in Wittenberg. And so Luther is back, comes back to Wittenberg. And, but what his heart is in is he's, deeply, deeply concerned with his parish and helping the people in his parish with concrete issues in their lives. And so so what we have... And he saw a train wreck happening with marriage. Oh my goodness, So yes. he writes about uh, the state of marriage in the 1500s, how I dread preaching on the estate of marriage. I am reluctant to, to do it because I am afraid. If once I get involved in the subject, it will make a lot of work for me and for others. He finishes by saying, I must proceed. I must try to instruct poor, bewildered consciences and take up the matter boldly. So what was marriage like in 1518? Well, first of all, it's something discouraged and denigrated. You only do it if you have to. And sex is only done for procreation, uh, for family. And that any other idea of enjoyment in marriage is almost seen as sinful. Well, actually, it was there was a document put out by the Catholic Church in 1494, which wasn't that much before Luther. I mean, and, and right now, what it says is, uh, according to the church teaching, it was uh, how the laity sin in the marital duty. It was the name of the document. So it was basically outlining, hey, if you like sex, sin. You know, you are, you sir, I sinner. And Having so, the joy of companionship and intimacy with another person um, is such a surprise to me because God has commanded us to be fruitful, to multiply. This is built in the very command of God. And yet, in 1494, they were describing that it is something that is necessary, but don't enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, good luck with that. And so then then we have, you know, you have uh, singleness and celib- celibacy were celebrated. And they, the term they used was a, a higher and holier state. Yeah, so look at this word state, and Luther described the estate of marriage. And that word state or estate is describing different areas of influence and calling. And the notion was that some people will be called to the church, some people will be called to the state, and some, unfortunately, are also called to family. And, and, and yeah, and that's exactly in that order. You know, yeah. it's like the where you can. It, it's almost like uh, the way the church was looking at things in the fifteen early fifteen hundreds was that if you wanted to know what God was blessing, you look where the power was. And the power was in the church, and then the state is there to ensure that there is a church, and the family's there to make sure everything else is taken and, care of. Yeah, I the guess. family is just sort of an after. They're the ones that take out the trash. Yeah. Um, now, what Luther is going to propose is this reordering of church and state and family is, in fact, that you are called to all three. Instead of you getting to say, I'm only called to this or I'm only called to that, Luther and the Reformers say you are called to the church. You are a part of the priesthood of all believers. You are called to the state. You are called to be in relationship to your neighbor. And you are called to be in a family. You have a mother, father, you have brothers and sisters, and you are called within all three to use the gifts that God has given you to serve others. And what we're going to be doing, the as now that we've laid out the ground, oh, I want to finish up with, we, we've laid out the groundwork of what things were like in 1518 when Luther steps into this quagmire. 
And over the course of his life, Luther comes back to these issues of church, state, and family and mapping out how the balance of power is and how, I think, and actually this is an, I, the way I interpret it, and, you know, Evan, if you can correct me, I interpret it that he says that the church and the state are there to, to, uh, to serve the family and that it's really the family rather than be the lowest. Family is just sort of, a little bit higher. Is that I think it? it's in the table of duties, which is at the end of the small catechism that he publishes in 1529 is um, where he describes the duty that everyone has in relationship to another. I think Luther is always concerned in the most near relationship you have with your neighbor, with your family and how these become opportunities for you to know God and to, uh, and to then share and serve God with others. And so to lift up family is to lift up those nearest relationships. Okay, okay. So, well, let's let's finish with a quote from Luther. And, and this is actually uh, what he says. Uh, uh, I, thought, I thought it was a good quote. So, uh, when I was a boy, marriage was considered so infamous on account of impious and impure celibacy that I could not think about married life without sin. For all were convinced that if anyone wished to live a holy life and acceptable to God, a holy and ex- a life holy and acceptable to God, he must never become a spouse, but must live a celibate, uh, live a celibate life and take the vow of celibacy. This is, was why many men who had, who had married became monks or contemptible priests after the death of their wives. So uh, this is this is later, uh, and you have this contemptible priests, and we'll start seeing these. These uh, these little broadsides from Luther as he ages, he's still he's still sort of in a friendly. In 1518, he's still friendly with his language with the Pope and with the Church. But yeah, he's he's but he starts breaking out. You know, yeah. we'll start seeing the real real insults coming up. So I think that's. Uh, let's see. Oh, anything else we got to talk about? I think you know just the address of sermons, letters, and documents that Luther used to write about um, the situations in the family and in the state and the church um, really come in the context of being in a community. Um, Luther was not a pie-in-the-sky academician, um, academic guy. He really, he was uh, lecturing to students who were engaging with conversation about what they're hearing and talking about. He is in the parish in Wittenberg preaching regularly um, I really enjoy that Luther, when he writes about these issues, is considering what does this mean for the people raising their children. Now, one of the things that, and this plays out even today in Lutheran churches, is that I've noticed, you know, Lutheran pastors, I've known many Lutheran pastors over the years, and almost every one of them, it doesn't matter if they're a professor or doesn't matter if they're, you know, they, they're often deeply involved. They might be a, pa- if you're a professor, they might still be a pastor at, at a local church. Yeah. And, and even if they're, uh, um, the past, the, the Lutheran pastors remain engaged with the, with the, with the people in the parish. It's sort of mirroring what Luther did here, where it's always, and, and the pastors I've spoken to said, you know, they get a real reality check. When it comes to, you know, their teachings and what they believe when they when they actually go and minister in a parish. Well, Mike, I find whenever I'm stuck on what I'm going to preach about the upcoming Sunday, 
I will make hospital visits and visit the homebound, uh, make phone calls to people who are struggling. And it's in those in conversations that suddenly I say, yeah, now I know what I'm preaching about. And I think anytime uh, we find ourselves stuck about how to connect God's word to what's going on in our life, I think the best thing to do is just start doing it. Start connecting God's word to the lives of the people you care about. And you will say, oh, now I see it. Yeah, it keeps, keeps things grounded rather than getting to, which is one of the problems Luther ran into was that things had gotten too academic to, you know, things were, the, the academy was sort of completely divorced. And, and actually this idea that marriage was sort of, eh, that's what the little people do was sort of, uh, uh, you know, an indicator of that. So in our next episode, we're going to look at uh, Luther's sermon on the estate of marriage. And we're going to talk about the, uh, Luther's exposition on the Lord's Prayer, uh, where it's it's basically early ideas that Luther had on how to teach the faith to the, to the... Yeah, so before the small catechism uh, comes his own sermons about the Lord's Prayer. And finally, Luther preached a sermon on the two kinds of righteousness. It's a short sermon, considering the breadth, and the depth of the discussion, uh, but it has implications on Luther's thought for the proper distinction between church and the state and the power that uh, the word of God has to influence both the church and the state. And so I think that's all we've got uh, for today. I want to say thanks to our sound guy, Josh. And I want to th- say thanks to everybody that came to the brewery for our first road oh, trip. that's right. That's right. Uh, we have an opportunity. That was a great time. Really enjoyed ourselves. We're looking for ideas on our next road trip. So you can We're either... looking for uh, sometime in May and looking for a good uh, spot that might create a little bit more space for conversation. Yeah. And so if anybody has any ideas out there, shoot us. A, you can visit us at our Facebook uh, or so in the search bar on Facebook, just type Grace on Tap and you'll find our, our group our, there. Our little podcast. And, or you can shoot us an email at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. You can find our website at graceontap-podcast.com. We want to say thank you to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan, and the resources of time and support and prayer they give to both of us. And Wikipedia had a great article on the investiture controversy. I actually did a lot of digging, and that was that was a nice summary. Yeah, and read about uh, Henry the Fourth and going to Canosa. Uh, it's a, a great story. I can just picture uh, myself sometimes as the emperor trying to demand someone to repent, um, and I other times imagine myself as Henry the Fourth groveling <laughs> on my knees. I guess that's somewhat how marriage works. <laughs> Nationsonline dot uh, com was, uh, or I'm sorry, nationsonline dot org was good, and uh, Britannica dot com uh, gave us some really good information on Charlemagne. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank the folks at BeliefNet uh, for their quote. Uh, they are the ones who actually had the, the actual quote from James Madison uh, on on Luther. So that was or on uh, on Luther's influence on the um, uh, ch- separation of church and state. So thank you for listening to Grace on Tap. We'll catch you next time. Prost. Prost. <laughs>